So again, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5, as we will look at this chapter in its entirety. As I read and studied this this week, it reminded me, as an educator, as a teacher, that we live in a world that largely believes that education is the cure for all the ills of society. That if we can count off the different things that are going wrong in society, whether it be theft and violence of any kind, murder, sexual deviancy, all crime could be taken care of if we could just get people to listen to reason. If we could just get them to understand that it's more reasonable not to do these things and we could teach them reasonable things and they would say, yeah, you know what, you're right. I'm going to stop being violent and I'm going to stop taking things that aren't mine and so forth. The idea works off the idea, the idea works off the, uh, the precept that man is reasonable and that he is good on the inside and that if you can just get to that part of him, that you can change him. This is also coupled with the idea that we are nothing more than sophisticated animals, products of a natural process that are governed by the same instincts as the animals that live all around us. Just a shocking comparison. If you compare this to the Christian worldview, which states that we are sinful from birth and unreasonable by nature, that we are debased in our minds until we are made alive in Christ, at which point the scales are off and we can see the world clearly as it is. As we've been going through the book of Daniel, we have seen this juxtaposition over and over between two opposing worldviews. We see this picture of the pagan worldview up against the biblical worldview. And each time we see the biblical worldview prevail, the pagan at least acknowledging the fact that there is a God, but never coming to Him in repentance. Our text today is no different, though after today we'll be leaving Babylon behind as history does, and they will go into the dust of history never to return. They will get their last education their last lesson. As we move through the text, I want us to consider how our own society mirrors the Babylonians, like all societies throughout time have. Ours is not special. There's nothing happening today that has happened that hasn't happened before. More importantly, I want us to consider our own role in this, how we can be in this society. If we are those who have been changed and who realize that we are more than mere animals, but we are created in the image of God, and we know the Savior and we have been sent out to tell others about Him, then what is stopping us from doing that? As we move through the text, I want us to consider two opposing viewpoints that we see in this passage. First, the indifference of pride, and then second, the urgency of repentance. So with that, let's look together at the text, Daniel chapter 5, starting at verse 1, reading in its, in its entirety. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Daniel 5, starting at verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem be brought to that king, and the lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. 
And they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of the God in, in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the God of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in and they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and the lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the, of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom who is, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom and the wisdom of gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made your father the king, made him chief of magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in Daniel whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, and the spirit of the gods is in you, and the light of understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in to read, or brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be a third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing of the king and make known the inter interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was like that of the wild donkeys. He, fed, he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son... Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but have lifted yourself among against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubine have drunk wine from them, and you praise the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath, 
and who in all who are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mene Mene Tekel Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you shall be weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, or the king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a bit of context here, before we move on, there are a few important historical matters to discuss concerning this text. First of all, you'll notice that we're no longer talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar died around 562 B.C., and you might, this might cause us to think then that Belshazzar was naturally next in line, but that isn't accurate. Throughout the text, the term father is used of Nebuchadnezzar, but that's not in the way that we would use that concerning our immediate father, but more in a generic term concerning like the patriarchy, you know, kind of like a grandfather or great-grandfather or something along those lines. In reality, a few kings had come and gone between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. 22 or 23 years about is what transpired between the two. Belshazzar is actually probably serving as like a kind of a puppet king, not the true king, because the true king, whose name was Nebuchadnezzar, was away in the east attempting to conquer more lands for the Babylonians, which is a pretty wild history. If you want to learn about Babylonian history, I read quite a bit about it this week, and it's just all kinds of strange, which is exactly what you can expect Lots of coups and weird cultic kinds of things that you want to read more. I encourage you to do so. For our text today, Belshazzar is another in line of pagan kings who had taken God's people into exile and desecrated the sacred things as they did so. We're reminded of that today, something that we last read about all the way at the back of the beginning of the book, these idea of sacred things. One of the major ideas here is that this could be a king in any time. The principles are the same. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians brings out the same theme that we see here in Daniel 5. In chapter 6 he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever, for whatever one sows, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from it reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Both of these extremes we see here in Daniel chapter 5. As much as any text in Scripture, we see this for Belshazzar the man, for the Babylonian Empire. We see this that their time is up. The proverb that we all know very well, the writing is on the wall, literally comes from this passage. And that brings us to... The first point, the indifference of pride. Verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. Most biblical historians believe that 
even while Belshazzar was hosting this feast, while he was in the midst of this feast, Cyrus and the Persians and the Medes were laying siege to Babylon. Babylon was a highly walled and fortressed city with years of provisions stored in case of a siege. And so Belshazzar was at ease in his house, prospering in his palace, as we've heard before. Even with the next great empire knocking at his door, he is hosting a drunken party, and he's drinking in front of thousands. The writer of the text wants to make sure that we understand, because any leader should know better than this. When in front of their constituents, they shouldn't indulge in something that dulls the mind. Rather, they should be at their best, especially during those times. But like what, like much of what we've read up to this point, Babylon and its leaders are all kinds of backwards. So Belshazzar gets drunk enough that he lets his senses go, and he does something that will go ahead and seal the deal for his empire. Even though they were never going to last forever, we already knew that about them. This is probably what went ahead and sealed the deal for them. Look at verses 2 and through 4 again. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem, he, he, he brought, that the king and his lords and wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood, and stone. If you remember all the way back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, we're told in that verse that Nebuchadnezzar took those sacred items and he set them up next to his own gods. Well, here in this next chapter, all here in chapter 5, all of these years later, we hear about it again. Those sacred vessels had been in a place where no one would have forgotten them. They would have been on display, but they probably were also in a place where generally people were probably just leaving them alone. They were a picture of conquest and nothing more. Granted, they were next to pagan gods, and those pagan gods were, of course, no gods at all, but remember... In 1 Samuel, the Philistines placed the Ark of God next to Dagon, their God, and Dagon was dashed to pieces the next morning because, of course, the Lord knocked the idol down. God could have done something similar here, waiting all these years, these sacred vessels being set up next to the pagan gods of Babylon, but he waited until the right time, and this apparently was the right time. Along comes Belshazzar, who takes those cups and drinks out of them. He gives them to the other higher-ups and their wives and concubines, and everyone gets to drink wine from the vessels that belong to the one true God. To add insult to injury, Belshazzar and his friends then sing praises to the pagan gods and all these materials. It talks about the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone to make sure that they left nothing out, even though they left the one true God out. And so they're singing uh, praises to these pagan gods out of the vessels of the one true God. God is patient. He's slow to anger. He is long-suffering. This was the last straw for the Babylonians, and God lets them know in no uncertain terms. Verse 5, Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on 
on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. I've tried to picture this in my mind, how it probably looked that day as Belshazzar was drinking out of that golden vessel, singing to the god of stone and wood and whatever else. And all of a sudden this hand appears on the wall and begins writing things. I kind of want to picture it as this kind of gaunt, gray hand with spindly fingers and long pointy nails because it's scary, right? It's supposed to look like that, like out of the pages of a horror book or something like that, but it probably wasn't anything like that at all. It probably was just a plain hand. Just all of a sudden starts writing on the wall, which in my mind all of a sudden becomes much more terrible to just see this tiny hand back there writing on the wall. Whatever the case is, this hand writes four words on the wall, and those hands don't make any sense, but the hand and the words and all the things that's going on, Belshazzar is terrified. His color left him, we hear. His his limbs gave way. He We know this feeling, right? I can't remember too many times of being that terrified, but I would imagine that an unattached hand writing things on the wall would probably get me pretty afraid. Belshazzar, in his fear, did what Nebuchadnezzar did before him. He called the three stooges together, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because they've always come through, just like all the learned members of the academy. They just need to educate the Babylonian leaders as to what's going on, and then it will all make sense. Oh, that's why an unattached hand is writing on the wall. Thank you for helping that all make sense. But we know that that never happened. In all their learning, here we see it again, they're unable to explain what's going on. He calls together these stooges, and they're like, we don't, we don't know what's happening. They're probably terrified too. And even with a Persian army at his gates, he dies this night, and this night they become king. The Darius becomes king. Cyrus takes over the city. Even on this night, when they're partying, as their walls are tumbling down, he's willing to offer purple clothes. And number three position in Babylon, if someone will just tell him the mystery. Remember, each time in the past, this mystery was unraveled, and every time Nebuchadnezzar said, wow, that's interesting. What a mighty God you serve. And then nothing. Back to pride and arrogance, comfort and ease. Because all the dream interpretations, fiery furnace survivals, and hands writing on the wall in the world cannot change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Only the Lord can do that. Reminds me of one of Jesus' parables. Several of his parables actually align with this perfectly, but there's one that I want to read to drive home the point. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 16, especially considering Daniel's words of warning to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Remember back in in chapter 4, he gave words of warning. Nebuchadnezzar, listen, just start showing some mercy to people. Just... Just start doing, put the sin away and show mercy to the oppressed. And perhaps maybe the Lord will relent. So read this parable, make those connections. 
Look, it's just a, it's it's almost as if this man that we're going to read about is Belshazzar, right? And there was this rich man in the parable is is Belshazzar or or Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus was there at that feast that day, of course, with Belshazzar, and he was unimpressed. And the parable, I think, pairs very well with that. So let's look together, Luke chapter sixteen. I'm going to read verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. There's that. Fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who covered in sores, who desired to be fed from what fell at the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And then Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. But Lazarus, like men, are bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us, you, us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from here to us. He said, and get this, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar in his grave, just wishing he could tell those that came after him. Like the rich man in this parable, if he could go back and convince them that then finally they would get it. Maybe just one more fiery furnace event. Can you just deliver one more group of boys out of the fiery furnace? Then they'll get it. Or maybe one more dream that foretells my doom if I don't repent? Perhaps then. Or maybe just another hand on the wall? Can you just detach another hand and make it write some things on the wall? Then they'll be convinced. What does Jesus say here? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's no amount of convincing or showing that can save a lost person from their sins. That can close that chasm that exists between them and a holy God. Only Jesus can do that. In his death and his resurrection, he accomplished that for his people. We regularly talk about the unbelieving heart here, and we compare it to that of the believer in many ways to understand, for us as believers, to understand the freedom that we have in Christ, right? As well as to understand our tendencies to continue to sin, as we should. We do that in order to learn from it, to grow in grace and mercy of God, because that's what God does to His people. He, he sanctifies them in His truth. By His Word, we as His people are sanctified. The unbeliever 
doesn't have that. They can't be sanctified. They're dead. The heart of stone is only able to do evil continually, harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And it would be really easy for us to poke fun at Belshazzar here, but what we should do is come away with compassion for him and others like him that we know. Because then it was Belshazzar, today it's someone that we know who has this same attitude toward God. For them, the writing is on the wall. The Persians are at the gate, except Cyrus, not Jesus. Jesus is at the gate today. And when those people pass from this life to the next, he will look at them and say, I never knew you. Away from me, workers of lawlessness. So for us, what is the answer? How do we get through to that heart that is arrogant, who is indifferent? We know the answer. Daniel did too. Brings us to the next point, the urgency of repentance. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy gods and in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the, the father of the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom, you're, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. This queen, likely the queen mother, who's probably not the wife of Belshazzar, comes in with some words of pagan wisdom. There's this man named Daniel, and he always seemed to get Nebuchadnezzar moving in the right direction. You should talk to him. So you should talk to probably the only person in the room that had any sense, thankfully talked some sense into Belshazzar, so he called for Daniel. But notice how he treats him in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel. One of the exiles of Judah, whom I, whom the king my father brought from Judah. He reminds him of his status. You're just an exile here. You're still our captive. While wise and able, he's just a captive here in the great Babylon. Just to make sure you understand, Daniel, we know who you are. You don't really have anything to give us, but if you could solve this riddle, we'll give you some purple clothes. And we'll let you be number three in a kingdom of a, that's about to be knocked down to the ground. Daniel, of course, is ever gracious with those in charge, having known the truth and knows the truth and knows the end of Babylon, interprets the dream after recounting what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And he also makes sure Bel- Belshazzar knows what's going on here too. Look at verses 22 and 23. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this, you knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. This is, this is public record. This is history. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. You have not humbled your heart, but have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you praise the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, or hear, or know. 
but the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Belshazzar had not remembered, or if he did, he at least did not demonstrate that he had remembered. And Daniel made sure that he understood the ramifications of his decision. The writing was plain, at least to Daniel. They just needed someone to explain it, and you see that in verses 25 and following. And this is the writing that is inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Literally, what's written on the wall are the words counted, counted, weighed, and divided. You've been counted twice, weighed and measured, yet you've come up short. You've been found wanting. Now your kingdom will be divided and the Medes and the Persians will divide you up like cattle or like some other kind of possession that is easily divided. And what was Belshazzar's command at this? To make sure that Daniel got some purple clothes. To make sure that he got a necklace and got a promotion. And his next response was to die and to have all those things happen to him. And his knowledge of the world did him no good. Belshazzar and the rest of the Babylonians had some pretty incredible things happen to them in their lives. Some pretty amazing things happened. They should have seen, they should have known. Daniel had been around for a while now. He had been there for all of that. The remnant of a conquest that was now half a century old at this point. Daniel was starting to age himself. He was a holdover from Nebuchadnezzar, but had some value and was kept around for some reason. But he didn't have anything to teach them that was new because they knew everything they already needed to know. And now the writing was literally on the wall. Babylon is done. The Persians would be next in line in this great empire shuffle. Cyrus the Great, the prophesied savior of Isaiah, was going to walk into town and take his turn. The writing is still there today. It's not in Belshazzar's palace. Belshazzar's palace is long since been destroyed and used for firewood and parts of other palaces and under the sand and who knows where it is because it's not all that important. But the writing that warns the unbeliever is still there. And there are still people to interpret it. There are still messengers of that word. As I read this, think of Daniel's time in Babylon. Think of his continued message. It makes me think of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to turn there with me, let's read this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, concerning the message that we have. I think it's really easy to be afraid as we look at the society around us and wonder how and why and how can we possibly fix this craziness. We have the answers right here in God's Word. 1 Corinthians 18 and following. I'm just going to read to the rest of the chapter because I think it's important. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. 
But to those of us who are being saved is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were given noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why would God choose a message that is folly to those who are perishing? He tells us, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise so that no human might boast, but let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So how then do we explain those who are boasting to those who are Belshazzar of our day, to those that we love? Verse 23, I think, sums it up perfectly. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the writing on the wall that the world has been counted, weighed, and found wanting and will be divided such that all who die in unbelief will face eternal torment, like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, the rich man in Jesus' parable, and many, many after. What do we do then, brothers and sisters in Christ? We preach Christ and Him crucified. What else? What else would we do? Did Daniel ever ever lie to save himself? Did he ever mince his words? Does he ever make his words more palatable? No. Why should we? To that end, if you're here and you find yourself in this writings on the wall kind of moment, it's the same truth for you today. You have been counted, weighed, and found wanting. And no amount of your personal wisdom and righteousness can save you. You need Jesus. You need the righteousness of Christ to stand before a holy God. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Repent and believe today. For the believer here, there are lots of things that we could do to draw out 
of this. We could, we could spend a whole lot of time here, but for me it was an urgency. The urgency of this message. While the prideful is indifferent of the times, we know the times. We know that Persia is knocking on the walls, so to speak, except for it's not Persia or China or even our own government. It's God Himself that is at the walls. Every unbeliever who dies in their sin will present their own righteousness to the Father, and they will be found wanting. God has seen fit in His providence to use the foolishness of preaching and teaching the gospel in order to bring about salvation for His people. So brothers and sisters in Christ's church, let us be faithful to preach the gospel message. Let us be faithful to tell the lost about Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would take this message and even burn it into our own hearts, that we would not wander far from you, that the writing is still on the wall even for us. We don't stop needing your gospel, even because we have your righteousness. We need to be reminded of such each day, lest we think that our own righteousness is somehow seeping in to overtake. Lord, remind us of in whom we find rest and peace and comfort for all of our days, that we would find it in you. And Lord, help us also to be faithful to preach this gospel message, because there is no under message under heaven. There is no other name under heaven, the name of Jesus Christ by which men and women can be saved. Lord, help us to be faithful with the name of Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.